Hey everyone, this is Oren. Last week we had our live Halloween Just Shoot It Spectacular. It was an awesome event. We had sold out. It was a full house. Everyone had an amazing time. Some people on other podcasts even talked about the event. That's how fun it was. So if you missed it, hopefully you can make it to the next one. But as we do with all live events, this one had many technical difficulties, which you will hear as you're listening to the episode. We apologize. I think everything is pretty clear, but there are a lot of glitches and jumps and uh, part of the interview is missing. So, So that said, we had a really amazing time with our panelists of genre directors, Roxy, Brett, Drew and Dan. And I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome to Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. Uh, this episode is brought to you by all of you guys, right? Like normally, yeah, that's right. A lot of patrons in the house, thank you especially, but everyone who made it out, thank you so much. Uh, I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan, and today we have an awesome panel of genre filmmakers. First, to our right, we have Brett and Drew Pierce. They're a directing duo that came from a horror background. Their father, Bart, did special effects on the original Evil Dead film. Woo! They've directed two horror features that have done gangbusters business. Their first film, Deadheads, made a ton of money and made me feel bad about my own film at the time. Their most recent film, The Wretched, premiered at Fantasia Fest, has won an insane amount of accolades everywhere, including Fright Fest, Serrano After Dark, Scream Fest, and it's going to be screening at Austin Film Festival with Matt's short also. We'll have to hang out. And Matt's wife's script at the Script Fest in Austin Film Festival. Um, and according to something posted on Brett's Facebook page, the movie has a 90% Rotten Tomatoes score. And then I verified it. It's true. Uh, Drew's also a storyboard artist that worked on Futurama and Seth Rogen's The Interview, a very controversial film in other countries. And Brett develops reality TV shows in his spare time. And on occasion, they also listen to Just Shoot It. Next, we have Roxy She. Oh, that's Brett and Drew. Brett and Drew. Next, we have Roxy. She's a producer and director that has had films at Cannes, South by Southwest, LA Film Festival. Her directorial debut, The Tribe, won her Best Feature Director Award at Otherworld's Austin Film Festival, which was a real bummer for all the other directors there. Uh, in 2016, she directed the anthology sci-fi series Dark Web for Amazon Prime. Her second feature, Painkillers, was made for Hulu. And it's worth mentioning that she's probably the best member of our panel in terms of promoting this show. Uh, Shout out. Yeah. And also... At- Hashtag Super Director Roxy. And also has a very cool name. Finally, we have Dan Casey, who I found out tonight went to high school with Brett and Drew. What are the odds? He's written a ton of movies that you have or will hear of soon, like Kin, starring Michael B. Jordan, Dennis Quaid, James Franco. He also wrote Fast and Furious 9, uh, which probably has a pretty good budget. Uh, He wrote The Heavy, which is being produced by some guy named J.J. Abrams. He's adapting the comic book Kill or Be Killed with uh, one of the John Wick directors, Chad Stahelski. By the way, this is all from IMDb Pro, so it could be totally not true. Uh, so far, so uh, good. But we all know that writing is for chumps, which is why he also directed a bunch of stuff, including The Death of Michael Smith, which played Slamdance and had a reported budget of $541. And he also did some shorts at AFI. But most impressively, he was an office PA on Drag Me to Hell. I was. Um, yes, I was. So, cool. So, should we start? Let's start with some questions. Hey, one more round of applause for our... our oh, yeah. Thing. So, we were calling this a genre filmmaker panel, because you guys all do stuff that's pretty much not 
drama and not comedy. But I'm curious, like, what? How would you a, define a little trashy? Is how I like to think of it. A little right? trashy, yeah, yeah. 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 A like, little naughty. Uh, how would you guys define genre filmmaking? Like, what's a genre film in your mind? I mean, genre film is anything for me that just uh, it's not just a drama where there's like some other element, be it action or horror or like adventure film or anything like that. Anything where, I mean. Part of why I love horror films and genre films is it kind of tests you to kind of create suspense more than anything, be it action or horror or whatever. So anything where suspense is probably one of the key factors you're trying to pull off with your sequences, I would almost classify it as genre. Would you guys describe yourselves as genre filmmakers? Yes. <laughs> I think it's so fascinating to think of uh, people who kind of grew up thinking that they wanted to make genre movies, horror movies, action movies, that sort of thing, and then people who maybe were a little more strategic about it. You know, I think um, we talk about, like, I always talk about Sam Raimi as a guy who, like, grew up making, like, slapstick comedies and then was like, wait a minute, horror movies, you don't have to have a famous person for that. Um, but you guys, you grew up thinking that you wanted to be horror directors. Is that accurate? I think just genre direct. I mean, we, we love right, action, yeah. we love adventure, we love all that stuff, but I think horror, I mean, the last... You know, it's it's still one of our favorites. We're not practical enough to go like we need to make this movie so it's successful. It's always like oh, I'm really excited about this idea, but um, it there is a route for especially horror that's more open than it's ever been in some ways. There's a there's a festival route for it. Even if you don't get into the big festivals, there's a bunch of really big genre festivals, and there's a lot of stuff that comes out, and there's a lot of filmmakers that come out there that do big things because there's there's a mass audience for it. It's there. And I think a lot of my favorite filmmakers, even like Spielberg and a lot of those guys, they were making horror movies that were, you know, had the family element and the sci-fi element and all that. So I think all my favorite movies have at least a portion. Yeah, the yeah. first, like, 20 minutes of E.T. is terrifying. It scared the yeah, crap yeah, out yeah. of me. Yeah. And the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, Roxy, tell us. So you've, you've directed three features? You're two and you're working on your third, but you've produced, like, you have like 48 producing credits on IMDb. How do you get these things paid for? Um, really good question. Because for me, I think, um, I didn't go to film school. You know, I went to UC Irvine. I had a sociology degree. I wanted to be a flight attendant. Didn't work out. Um, <laughs> I'm serious. I I'm like super that. scared of turbulence. <laughs> like, and, um, and so and then my parents are like, well, doctor or lawyer because you're Asian. And like, I can't read. Um, <laughs> and so I came to LA and I started PAing and I started like, you know, picking up coffee and like throwing out trash for people. And then for me, I'm a very visual learner. You know, like I really get myself in a thick of things. I didn't understand you can't fire an AD. I didn't understand that, you know, you have to block before you light. Like these are things that I learned as I works Wait, in what Los was Angeles. That you can fire an AD or that you You can't because there's no one running your show and then you have to do it and that's really terrible. Really? Well yeah, I don't know about you, but like, you know, in my experience I'm not a very good you know, I'm just like, okay, well, all right, well if you need to work on that for thirty more minutes, I guess that's fine. You know? I mean, but, like, yeah. but like honestly, like what was sort of got me into it was I honestly think that energy and attitude is so important in this industry. You always have to be very open to learning from different people. As a filmmaker, whether it's from a producing background or um, from a director's space, I think your job is to listen and absorb. 
you know, because things are always shifting so rapidly, especially in the way that we're doing things. I mean, just within the span of five years, I mean, all this digital, um, the digital formats have been changing. We're doing vertical video now. We're talking about VR storytelling. Like, no matter what it is or what you think you know, I feel like I'm like rambling on a lot about no, no, I I even answering the question. Roxy, we knew what we were signing up for. I've known Roxy for a long time. I know the deal. Me rapping. No, but I, you know, because I observe all these things. And um, anyways, short story long, how do you get it funded? Um, I made it very clear because, you know, I wanted to make a living doing this. So I was, you know, working at Boba Shops. And at the same time, I was telling everybody, you know, completely serious. I I drove Lyft. I drove Uber. I'm not ashamed about it. You know, like, I think one thing we need to talk about more is privilege in this industry, who gets to tell these stories? You know, I'm a queer woman of color and um, I'm very grateful to be able to sit in front of you and tell you my point of view, you know, but like I was very open. I was just telling everybody, hey, I'm willing to work on your thing for lower no money. Like one thing always leads to another. Like for example, my the first feature I produced was $30,000 micro budget horror movie shot in one location, two actors, okay? What was That's, that one called? It's called Deadly Revisions. Oh, it's about a screenwriter. Um, Deadly Revisions shot on like five Ds, you know, but it was a really great learning experience for me. Who gave me my next job the guy I was on the phone with with Burns and Sawyer who was getting my rental for my DP kit and he was like what do you need I'm like I don't know I just need like a truck with lights he gave me my next job you know he offered me my next feature film because he was just like there's something about this kid you know like she doesn't know a lot but she's really willing to learn and she's really to put in the effort and I think as long as you have I'm wrapping this up I promise you have your strong artistic boundaries you have your integrity you know you're willing to work you're willing to just um do the work but also stand up for yourself it goes really really far right so something will always happen I know it feels like oh it's not coming to me why is my movie not getting financed I realized I never even answered your question, Oren. I, we, we were going to get back all, to it. Don't worry. I'm sorry. You're there. You're I feel there. like I'm just like hijacking the whole conversation. Yeah, this is a podcast. People are here to hear you talk. All right. And then it's going to get edited yeah. and Roxy's going to get edited. No, but, but like, um, you know, like timing is so important. You know what I mean? And like finding the right tribe is also very important as well. So when all those things come together, when you're ready to make your first short or your first feature or whatever it is that you choose to do, that all is supposed to happen at that time. So in the meantime, just keep working, just keep writing, just keep meeting people because there's so many unicorns out there and we all vibe differently and are different points in our lives. So just always be learning. Sorry, I didn't answer your question, Oren. I promise I'll be a better no, next time. No, 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 no. but okay. let's circle that was a That's a wonderful answer. answer. I love it. Um, but let's talk about the tribe, for instance, right? Yes. Like That was kind of like a, um, kind of halfway through your career between the beginning and now, right? Yes. How did that one get funded, for instance? Okay, so the tribe, um, the, the my second feature, the one that you know the the GNE guy <laughs> ended up introducing me to, he became my mentor, and I think mentorship is also something very important as well because we will find different people to guide you through um, your career at different points in your lives. And he's like, kid, I see you saving up a thousand to $2,000 a year, just making a short film with your friends. When are you gonna make a feature film? And I go, oh no, it's not gonna happen. Look at me, I'm a woman of color. It's not gonna happen. Statistically, 0.02% will actually make it. And then he goes, I'm gonna give you my camera give you my red camera at the time those were big okay so he's like give you my red camera you know back in the day yeah all my G&E gear you have no excuses go make a movie you have a camera in your hands and that like really sprouted something in my head suddenly two weeks later I get this script from a friend of mine he's like hey Rox had this for a while won a couple screenplay awards 
I don't know, does it have potential of getting produced? And all of those micro budgets that I used to make, I thought, what am I doing with my life came for this reason. I read the script, I resonated heavily with this. For $100,000, I can make this if I have that money. So I went to my parents. I said, hey, mom, dad, never going to grad school. <laughs> and I just like, well, no, I honestly, I was like, can this be my grad school, right? Um, sorry I never was that kid, you know? And then they said, we'll give you wild. That's what, that's what my dad said to me. And then he said, um, but if you get your next directing offer from this, then it would have been worth it. And it's an investment in your career. So I go, thanks. What happened, what happened next? So then I took that. You guys still need money. Like, I, I still need, like, $60,000 left, right? So then I was like, all right, Roxy, let's look at your savings, right? <laughs> I was like, still paying it off to this day. So I put a big portion of that into that. But it's worth it because I, I wouldn't be here if I didn't make that investment in myself. Kickstarted the rest. Did you get the next job, though? That's what I'm asking. Oh, oh yes, I did get the next job. The lead actor, Michael Nardelli, I didn't know was a producer at the time, was developing Dark Web. And, um, you know, we shot the movie in 13 days. I was like a maniac, but a cute, lovable one, of course. <laughs> and, um, and he's like, yeah, you're really good. I'm like, thank you, please validate me. I'm Asian, never received that in my life before, so please feed me. And then he said, well, I'm developing this like show. Would you be interested in writing and directing one anthology episode? And that was already like so moving, but then they ended up offering me the whole first season. You know, and so that was, and it's on Amazon Prime, please go watch it and please give us, so we could get a season two. Um, and then I went to Comic-Con, premiered at Comic-Con this year. You know, so um, yes, you know, I think, I think whatever your intuition is telling you, sometimes you just gotta figure out how to make it work. Like I financed it with my savings. My parents were like, this is our last, you know, we're just gonna see what you're gonna do with your life, flight attending, you know, like you wanna be a flight attendant, that didn't work out, and now let's just try this. And then it worked out at the end. You know, there is, it's a high-risk business. Um, unfortunately, sometimes when you're pushed in a, a, a certain direction, you're like, I have to just take a leap of faith, you know? And anyways, that's my story. Thank you. I'm hogging up on the mic time. Sorry. Sorry, Dan. I'm curious. Dad, <coughs> Dan's actually a new dad, like, as of a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Would you give True. your child $40,000 to make a movie? <laughs> and it's, that's TBD. She's, like, a month old. Yeah, so, you know. Let's see if she's as cool as Roxy. Do, do you want her to be a flight attendant? That's the real question. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll see how it shakes out. What about you guys, Drew and Brett? Like, um, so you guys have made two features. They're both indie films, right? Yeah. Um, I remember when you guys made your first movie, Deadheads, in 2009. Yeah. yeah, the two, first came out 2012. One. We shot it in 2008. I mean, the story is always the same. The first movie, um, I mean, it's always ask everybody you know who has money, you know, any rich relative friend. Whatever. Our first movie, we took out a student loan. In my name. For $25,000, because we had somebody that would double it. Because um, you can't ask somebody for money without any money in the bank, usually. They're like, so how much do you have in so far? And the answer can't be zero. So we're like, $25,000 from an investor we won't tell you about. Named Sally Mae. Uh, and then we just went around, and literally, we were taking people out to like $100 dinners and asking them, like, hey, you want to invest $2,000 into our movie? Uh, so that's the story of the first one. It's really just going around and asking everybody. Um, this last one, I guess a little bit more traditional, but it was, it was mostly about what we found, I think, is just putting together a really tight package. We did like, yeah. we did the Ripomatic. We did a really fancy lookbook with concept art, storyboards, 
people look at it and they go, oh, this is, this is kind of cool. I'll, I'll check this out. It's um, a lot of Photoshop, a lot of color correcting photos, sometimes bashing several photos together. And then just, you know, spending, I mean, we probably spent two weeks. I mean, you guys do a lot of that with your commercial stuff, right? Just finding the right photos is an art. <laughs> um, and putting them together in a way that's sort of exciting. Um, I work just with my day job. I work on like the doing storyboards for movies, but the biggest commercials in LA, like Shia Day and Deutsch and all these places in their decks, I learned from them, are beautiful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> their decks are like stunning. You know, when we go in and do, I don't even do storyboards for them. We do full like kind of 2D animations for all their commercials right, for like Dr. An animatic. Pepper. Yeah, like it's, it's super elaborate. So we just kind of took that into our process and said, let's just show them exactly what this movie's going to feel like. So that was sort of our... And who is them? Rich people. Yes. I mean, honestly, you just like, ask everybody you know, and eventually you find people like... It's always like a friend through a friend, somebody that knows somebody that has a little bit of money or has an interest in horror films. I mean, it's, it's just... Everyone asks that question, and there's not a good answer. It's other than just ask everybody until somebody says yes. I also think that you need to approach people who are invested in you. Okay, because it's not like projects, everyone, there's a, ma a million amazing projects out there. Don't be so like scattered with how you're approaching your financing strategy. Be very focused with your financing strategy. I think that is the one thing um, that I could take from in terms of l raising money for your movie is you have to be very specific with your ask. You know, even when it's coming to, oh, how much money do you need? This is how much I need it for. Here's my business plan. You know what I mean? This is everything. I think coming from that background, like just going to anybody, I think that works sometimes, but I also think that at the end, those who do give money are the ones who are invested in your own personal growth. Right. I think that we've got like such an interesting spread here, right, of people who like kind of run the gamut of like uh, different styles of filmmaking. But Dan, you're like um, doing some kind of classically like you know, capital H Hollywood movies now, right? Yeah, right. But also you went to AFI for directing, Yeah, yeah, right? my degree is in directing, and um, God, I don't know. I, like, I don't, <laughs> I don't want, I wouldn't want to take this into a dark kind of this conversation, but the, you know, the thing is, is that, like, I'm actually probably the guy up here who did not know anybody or, or was not good at um, uh, investing, because after AFI, I yeah. did the... Yeah. Uh, Show of hands here, who here is like, knows somebody or is good at investing? Oh, in sorry, no, it, it, good at investing, but like, I, I didn't, I didn't know, I, I never actually had that investor jump in on my stuff, actually, right. so right. I'm, I'm Which the, I, th I, think, yeah. I think our listeners at home are going to relate, is what I'm saying. I think that's good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was just like, um, uh, I finished AFI, and uh, the, the movie that I had shot before leaving Detroit uh, to move to Los Angeles, that was Death of Michael Smith, and that one played, uh, it played the Slamdance Film Festival, and we shot that, if anybody here remembers, oh God, you're all so young, um, but like, if anybody remembers the DVX 100s, you know, like, I shot a whole feature just on mini DV, which like costs nothing, you know, so that's why that movie costs nothing, and I just cast buddies, you know, I, I wrote that script for actors that I knew personally, and I just kind of plugged them in where I knew they'd fit, and so we did slam dance, and then we did a bunch of other festivals. Everything was kind of really looking good in terms of the directing track, or hopefully. I did the, uh, the Sundance Screenwriting Director Labs in, in 2008. And was that because of the success that you found at slam dance, yeah. et cetera? Um, yeah, everybody thinks that there's like a rivalry between slam dance and Sundance. There's totally not. And, uh, and so anyway, so I, I kind of, I moved from having a film that had played at the Slamdance Film Festival 
to go into the Sundance Labs with a script uh, that I, you know, uh, I wanted it to be my next feature that I was going to direct. And the way that it worked out with the Sundance Labs is, and, and I was there, like Dee Reese was in my year, you know, who did Pariah. Yeah, and she, you know, she's since had this amazing career. She's, you know, super cool. Um, but like, you know, for every D Reese, there's also a Daniel Casey <laughs> who like, who doesn't make his movie. And, and so the ninth fast and furious movie. What a bummer. Well, it, I mean, I, if anything, I, hopefully I can be like the cautionary tale, but also the tale that's like, Hey, if you turn left, you know, and just kind of stick to writing, you can, you can have other opportunities, but like, and again, I don't mean to take this to a depressed area because I, you know, I like my life, but, um, I blew all my savings kind of driving you're flying back and forth from Los Angeles to Michigan. There was a tax incentive uh, there at the time, like a 35% tax incentive. Yeah, it was amazing. a pretty serious yeah. one. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, after the labs, I tried to put together this uh, this independent movie, and I guess I just never met the right investor. And uh, so I'll, I'll try to tell this next part quickly, but like spent a year and a half, if anybody remembers, uh, when the AMC 5 was the Sunset 5, the Lamley 5, I probably tore your ticket, uh, served you some popcorn uh, at some point in 2009. With general manager Roger. Uh, yeah, yeah, by the way, uh, legend, legend in the game. Yeah, yeah, but like, um, yeah, but yeah, no, like, I, uh, so I, I uh, the Sundance Labs being in 2008 and not, not finding that investor and just kind of holding out in Los Angeles, like by the time the end of 2009 came around, I was thinking about packing up and heading home. And I had a manager at the time. It was one of the great things that happened kind of coming out of Slamdance, a guy named Noah. And he basically said, uh, in, in, in the process of waiting and hoping that you know, my Sundance feature would come together, I wrote another script. And basically what he said, I was like living in a garage at the time. It's a long story. But like, um, he, uh, he was just like, with this new script that you've written, what's actually kind of like hurting you a little bit is that, you know, you're a good writer, but, you know, uh, nobody knows who you are as a director. So if you take your name off of this, just let me shop it around town. That script was called, this second script I'm talking about was called Jimmy Six. You know, he said, if you don't attach yourself to direct it, uh, maybe I can sell it, you know, and, uh, or, or get, you know, get you an option and just get you some cash and you can stay here a little longer in Los Angeles. And that was the script that like blew up my screenwriting career. <laughs> that was that was what started it. Is that on the blacklist? I, I I just got this script back, so if anybody wants to invest in it and I can finally direct again, yeah. uh, just let me know. Roxy, are your parents uh, looking? Project? Yeah, Roxy, can you introduce me to your dad? That's the last of their money. <laughs> They're still waiting. My mom made me sign a contract when I was 16, saying that I would buy her a BMW at some point in this life. And every year I go back home and she's like, where's my BMW? You're so, like, where's that contract, mom? So I know. <laughs> I need it in writing. We're going to interrupt the live show for a second just for a word from our sponsor, Shotlister, who helped make this live show possible. Here it goes. So, Zach, I know that Shotlister helps you make shots before you're shooting. When you're shooting, obviously, it helps you keep track of your day. Once you're done, is there any kind of data that comes out of Shotlister? One of the really cool things about the app is you, when you're planning your day, you estimate how long you think every shot's gonna take. But when you're actually shooting, it's recording how long the shot actually takes. So what's really awesome is at the end of the day, you can look at your shot list and see, oh wow, this shot took an hour and a half and this shot only took 15 minutes. And you start to see patterns. And the reason that can be really helpful often you're shooting with the same crew for more than one day. If you're shooting a movie, it could be you know many weeks or even a few months. And there's actually sort of these patterns that start to emerge. 
You know, I love that so much, and I feel like it's it's so powerful and kind of a thing that you know you can't compare with a real like or with a, a the old way of doing shots, right? Like you're, you're the old way of building a shot list. No one's actually going to like time how long their shots take. Wait, how do you mark when a shot is over? Right when you yell cut? I like to restrain myself from saying it's done until we actually start moving on to the next shot. But there's always the temptation to to click it early. Uh, while the last take is rolling, just because you know you're going to move on, but but uh, I try and be as accurate as I can. But really, it's just up to your own ethics because the the app glows red when you're behind schedule, and so often you really want to click that button to kind sure. of get back on schedule. But you're really in the end, who are you lying to? You're lying to yourself. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, Zach, this is really great. Tell us one last time if you're a listener at home and you you're like, oh man, I really want this the shot lister app. It sounds so cool, but I am broke. What do you do? We will send you a free copy. We'll send anyone a free copy uh, of the app just because you listen to this amazing podcast. Uh, all you have to do is email justshootitpod at shotlister.com. Tell us which version you want, iOS, Android, or macOS, and we will send you that copy. Uh, we're giving away 50 every month, so email as soon as you hear it. But if you miss out, just email the next month, and we'll, we'll send you one then. Awesome. Thanks, Zach. Now sneaking back into the live show like we never left. Going back to something that you said, Roxy, about how you define genre films, you said like fantastical, something kind of beyond our world. I'm curious, I mean, all you guys work, you know, with The Wretched and with Dark Web and obviously with like Kin and the projects you've done, Dan, like there's a lot of world building and mythology. I'm curious like how much of that you guys work on, like how, how much do you guys work on setting the rules of this world before you start writing your scripts? In the case where Drew and I with The Wretched, we, uh, we were, we're, it's a witch movie, so we were really adamant about digging through like all these different mythologies and finding things to actually pull from so that it had a grounding for us and also a familiarity for audiences that might go see it. Even if they're not blatantly aware of the myth, they might kind of recognize something. Specifically, I'm curious actually, because I think sometimes people talk about like, oh, I'm really into this type of mythology or something. Where did you source those myths from? Right. Did you just go find a cool book? Honestly, it came from, I'm a huge comic book nerd, and I read a lot of Hellboy comics. Okay, sure, and, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot of witches in Hellboy, and a lot of them come from you know various cultures. We based ours on a witch named Black Annie or Black Annis that's occurred in those books, but also been in a billion other stories. So that's kind of where it started. Um, but, I mean, in, in my short career so far, the one thing I've kind of learned is that or at least right now, that's kind of like the buzzword. Like every, the meetings we have gotten from this movie, they're excited about mythology and like your world. I think that's really just code word for like, we want a franchise, so how long can this last? Oh, sure. You know? Yeah. So that's, um, I think it's a very beneficial thing to spend a little time on to like flesh out as much as possible just because it seems to be something they care about the most and seems to be what's helped us a lot. So, <laughs> Roxy, are they correct? About what? About what they just said? Yes. Okay. Um, also, um, I also want to bring up something because you were, I, I think, just like going off like IP research and all of this stuff. Something very interesting that's happening now is a lot of creatives have been asking me like, oh, like I want to create original content. Like there's very little original content. The thing about these like production companies and like all of these financiers, they're hesitant to put their money in original content. So if you want to find something that's inspired by like this long lasting IP or, you know, write a version that's like, you know what I mean? Like they're more willing to look at that. Like if you want to come from 
a more, I guess, um, strategic point of view. Like, I'm trying to work on something with Chun-Li because I feel like every, you know, version of her done in movies has just been, bleh. make your own rules. Make it as rich and deep as you want to. Me, I don't have that kind of time nor that kind of patience, you know? So most of the time I like to ground my reality and what I know and what it is that I know and talking to many different types of people and then finding that little small supernatural element that could be brought out in something strange in a very nuanced way. Sophisticated way. It could just be in the way you shoot, the way that you that you um, create your cinematography, that you design your shots. It could just activity. Like limitations help you, you know, expand your mind and help you really force you to really find. Instead of saying an excuse like I can't do it because of X factor, that you really find a way around it, and that you're actually more capable than you know in finding that creativity. What about you, Dan? How much do you know about cars? <laughs> Yeah. How fast and how furious are you in your daily life? Yeah. No, no, but actually, N I, neither. I want to talk a little bit about Kin, actually, because I think that's an interesting yeah. uh, case study in that there is a lot of uh, world building to the, that movie, right? And, but also, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was based on a short, right? Yeah, it was a short. Um, I, yeah, I was going to. Uh, with, with Kin, it was a really cool process because the, uh, the two guys who directed that movie and, and, and kind of being able to work for them as a writer, they were very visually inclined. And so they. Do you guys know this movie, Kin? The, uh, like a super gun movie? Yeah. Yeah. So some came, came out last year. Five people saw it. They're yeah. all here. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but it was based on a Vimeo staff pick. <laughs> I'm forgetting the name of it. Yeah, uh, it, it was called Bagman. Ba yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, and, and Bagman was a, a short film. Um, they were two commercial directors. Uh, and the uh, the long and short of it was that they, they'd worked in commercials forever and had never kind of taken a shot at uh, at narrative film. Um, and uh, and I think that they just, I think they, they socked away something like 30 for, for the short itself because they did like an explosion and a car flip and there was some, yeah, it was, it was, it was an expensive looking short. I mean, it's basically though, it's very simple though, right? It's like yeah. a kid finds a super gun basically, right? Yeah, uh, it's, it's uh, the setup for the short yeah. is, and I wasn't involved in the short, so sure. I can't take credit for this, but, but like the, uh, the idea was that it opens in like Harlem and you see a kid, he's supposed to be going to school, his mom tells him to go to school and he doesn't and he just grabs this duffel bag from under his bed and the kid just like jumps on a train and he leaves the city, keeps going all the way out to the country and he's got this duffel bag with him the whole time. They get out to the country and he pulls like a space gun out of this duffel bag. Like and imagine like a Nerf gun but with like yeah. uh, the crazy laser it's 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 displays yeah, and stuff. it's what yeah. these guns look like in your imagination when yeah. you were six it's like, you know it's like a halo gun <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and so he just pulls this insane looking gun out of a bag and he's you know there's a question he's he's, he's going to shoot some targets so he kind of blows some stuff up you know awesome explosion things and you know then an owl lands in front of him and there's kind of a suspense question about whether oh my god is he going to shoot the owl and then what happens in the short that's like crazy is he the kid hears voices and kind of goes over this nearby incline and there's like a bunch of like mob guys and they're pulling somebody out of their out of the trunk of their car and they're going to do like a mob execution and this kid just like wanders out of the woods with this gigantic space gun and he, and 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 uh you know he's like what do you I, I forget exactly how everything jumps off but you know the mobsters try to like grab the kid and he like blows up the mobsters and like he, like exploding chunks of viscera and you know like and that was the short and then it just ends and that was it yeah it, it's pretty great and it's free yeah yeah that's the whole movie and then you get to write 
the that was movie the, that was the source material, that yeah. material and as so you were. when uh when when i met the bakers uh the the brothers uh josh and jonathan who did the short kind of joining the process with them it, it became very natural because you just kind of know exactly what it is that they're trying to execute visually and so the process was able just from a writing perspective to move very, very fast because they were very articulate. There were all kinds of examples that I could just look to. And, and as a result, when you kind of get that job as a writer, uh, if, if you can go from getting the job to shooting within a year, which is what we were, that's like super fast, you know? Um, and so it, it was good, you know, it was just a very streamlined, very clear process with those guys. So I, I think it's interesting to point out that we're kind of all still working in more or less, you know, familiar territory, right? We're talking about witches. Dark web is like very like urban myth sort of oriented, right? Like, um, and then even the idea of like super guns or like superheroes with race cars are kind of all, you know, it's, it's all things that we were familiar with in a certain sense. And that's how you get an audience in. That's how you get people to buy that ticket, right? Or to click download or whatever. Um, but we, I think you all have uh, mentioned ways in which you try to reinvent those expectations or subvert those expectations. Can we talk a little bit about understanding the tropes of a genre and then twisting them? It's something you live in terror of when you're working on something. Like when we went to go make a witch film, we watched every other witch film we could find to see what everybody else was doing. And you inadvertently in your screenplays end up emulating things you love. So you, you, I think probably where we put the most work in was going through it and going like, is this too familiar? Is this too much something else that everybody's seen too many times. Like even Dan gives some wonderful notes on an early edit of the movie. Um, very simple basic ideas. You know, most horror films start with somebody going to a new town. They're moving to a rural area. So they have the scene where they explore the weird town or they, they go to the new house and it's just like they, they check out their new bedroom. Um, and, and Dan was like, you can kind of, you can blow through past all this stuff because I've seen this in a bunch of movies. Like people know horror movies. They can make these assumptions. If you jump too far into the story, the danger is that you haven't set up the characters in a way that sort of makes them like relatable or you want. The second people have seen, especially if you have like two things in a row that people are like, I've felt this before. I've seen this kind of scene before. It's that's like death to a movie. And that's the hardest part. I think with horror is the first act is like the hardest thing to get through because there's only so many ways into the, I'm going to the creepy house that nobody's been in, you know? To approach this question, I think, we all are familiar with these tropes. Okay, so we know these characters, we know these monsters, yes. But when it comes to the filmmaker, you're coming from your own experience and your own perspective. Right now, I think it's such an exciting time because media and TV and movies reflect the current world that we live in, right? So I'm really interested and I wanna see more cross-cultural horror films. I wanna see more that explores the queer space. You know what I mean? I want us to be able to be a little bit bolder in the way that we create hybrid subjects or uh, the subtext beneath um, the horror because at the end of the day, horror films are amazing. They're talking about reflection of our society with a social message imbued in it. So I think that when you're, for example, I'm mostly for, for hire director, like I think I haven't written any of my feature films or what I've been hired to do, but what I do is I look at it, I'm like, okay, do I resonate with this? Do I connect with it? And even if sometimes I don't, I'm like, how do I connect with it? You know what I mean? Because the, the whole thing and the challenge is to find the connective tissue within all of us, the universal message. How do you make this powerful? Yes. The story and the characters are the stake, okay? Genre is the seasoning. 
okay? But you cannot over-season a steak, right? And you can't also, you know, and the steak has to be well, like it has to be fresh. Like you can't cook with rotten steak because no matter how you season it or how you cook it, it's gonna taste like shit, right? So you really have to start at the, at the you know, no, I'm serious. Like I, I like to use this analogy because we all have food, <laughs> you know? And like um, at, the, at the script phase, you really have to think about like how good is my steak, right? Don't shoot it until you have a good piece of steak. Oh, thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Thank you. So you're saying uh, high stakes are important. High stakes and good stakes are important. Oh, shit. It's good. Yeah. When we're writing when we're scenes writing. to like avoid cliches, that's always the hardest thing is we're always trying to figure out like how do we do this scene in a new way? And worst case scenario, if we can't figure out a new way to do it, they, you call it's called like hang a lantern on it, but basically have a character call attention to the fact that it's a trope and that's sort of like the pass by that at least like if the filmmaker is aware that they're doing the trope and you do it in kind of a fun way it sort of makes it less cringeworthy for the audience like like a joke about not having reception in the yeah it's always great to have always the character always that's sort of self-aware a little bit that's why like scream works so well you know right i know i think like the opening of buffy the vampire slayer yeah like, the very first episode is like this famous moment right because it's like there's some monster in the high school and they're running away. Are you in that episode, Oren, or no? I am in an episode of Buffy the Vampire. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? But it's, but it's not, the, not the pilot. Um, but, you know, they're running away from a monster in this hallway, this guy and this girl, and he's pulling her through all these different places, and she's like a cheerleader type, and he's whatever he is. And they're, he's like a jock. You know, yeah. yeah, he's a jock. Like a, like a and they're, you know, the monster's jock. getting closer, and they barely miss him, and they go into a room, and they go up the staircase, they, whatever, where they end up, and they're so scared of the monster, and they're looking at the monster... You know, waiting for the monster to come, and then they reveal that the the cheerleader girl is the monster, right? Yeah. Are you the jock yeah. in that scene? Was that what it was? No. <laughs> it might have been the guy beat up by that jock <laughs> yeah. in the previous scene. Um, but but taking those tropes that everyone knows has seen a million times, and then just flipping them on their head is is awesome. If this is helpful at all, at all. But like um, uh, with uh, with. Fast Nine. One of the things that we that we've run into quite a bit is that you know, with eight, <clears throat> and you know these these movies are all about visually one upping each other. You know, at, at at their core. You know, what can you do with a car that's insane, that's crazy, and uh, and what can the car be running from or chasing or anything like this? Uh, Justin, this is the director. Yeah, Justin, Justin Lin. Lin. I'm sorry. Yeah, and so uh, Justin, Justin was. Uh, he's driven to not repeat any beats that have been seen in any of the fast movies or any of the pre or, or any other kind of famous car chase movies. So if you can call it out from having been in a film, like a famous film, a famous right. moment, that's Ronan. Yeah, then, then, then it's out. out. And so like the process becomes a little bit exhausting because, you know, you're sitting there and you're talking to Justin and you're like, how about, how about like a thing with a train? And he's like, we did it in four. And I'm like, okay, what about a plane? And he's like, all right, we did it in six. Can't do it. You know what I mean? And so... But it, I, I think that that... Can you tell us one thing you're running away from? I, I can't. I, you know, oh, okay. like, I'm pretty sure the universal people will be listening to this to make sure that I didn't mess up. <laughs> MrMadAnlo.com. This is all my work. Yeah, they're pretty crazy, yeah. <laughs> but, the, um, but, but I think that's helpful. But I, I think that's helpful. It, it speaks for Justin and his ability to just kind of, like, keep going until... You know, you're almost worried that you might not come up with the with the perfect solve, and usually that's when you come up with the thing that kind of hasn't really been done before, or it's at least your own take on whatever right. it like is. Like a little girl chasing the car. But yeah, 
go the other direction. That's the move. Did you? I'm curious. Did you find you had homework? Did you have to like rewatch every great car chase? Yeah. Or was it more just kind of anecdotal? Yeah. I yeah. Mean, okay. Um, uh, you know everything from like he, he he wants you to see bullet and he wants you to see everything. So um, like Justin is just you know he's 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 so visual you know so between having to watch the Fast and Furious movies over and over and again and I've seen them all like fifty thousand times now you know because you, you know you're trying to you're you're kind of sitting in somebody else's living room if you come in on the ninth movie and uh, and start writing dialogue for Vin Diesel you know what I mean like Vin's gonna know his character better than I will so. Watch them and right. rewatch them. That's why I think Guardians of the Galaxy, they figured out how to write dialogue. Well, they did. Three, three simple words. Yes. So speaking of genre and kind of avoiding trope and stuff, I think something that's big in most genre films is that there's like great twists. How do you come up with like a good twist? I love twists. M. Night Shyamalan for himself has been legendary. And uh, Bong Joon-ho, you know, how many of it that he likes to write from his last scene. So he likes to work backwards. No spoilers yet. And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it because I have a lot of twists in my films as well because I'm always just like, oh, you're leading the audience somewhere, something like that. So I think um, just having that element of sometimes of just working backwards, you know, having a starting bar, having that visual, like in his film Mother, like it's just this iconic, you know, just just scene of just her dancing by herself or in memories of murder, you know, um, the detective just looking straight into the audience looking for who is the guilty, you know, because they haven't been able to find the suspect. Like working that backwards, like I think is a really interesting way to explore your writing um, and working backwards from the twist. Yeah, and you guys, I don't want to give anything away, but there might or yeah. might not be a twist. You just said there's a <laughs> twist in the movie. <laughs> We made a very M. Night Shyamalan-style movie, so that was a huge component of ours. I mean, I think something that, at least with horror films, that I'm a little bored with is that everything seems to be just jump scares and not a lot of forward progression in plot or just some sort of twist in the movie so that like the first act feels different from the second act and the third act. The cool thing about twists, which I think is really, you know, that's what why Hitchcock put him in suspense movies all the time, is it, it gives you... It gives you someplace different to go. So when we were talking about the twists that we ended up, the twists that work into our movie, you know, Drew had mentioned them. Drew came up with the one that's my favorite in the movie, and it kind of terrified me to try to work it into the story. But I kind of realized like that's the reason you do it because we need to have different stages of the movie. We need different stakes. We need things to change. Yeah, twists are dangerous because it's going to either make people love your movie or hate your movie. If you don't pull it off, your movie is garbage, you know? The the first, um, we actually made a horror movie with Dan that he probably doesn't talk about anymore for $4,000 in high school. Can we talk about it? We made a terrible, well, not terrible, fun zombie movie, kids in a cabin, there's a monster on the loose, people coming back to life. Monster had butt feet, by the way. It was really terrible. But it wasn't the best movie. Wait, hold on. I mean, we shot it. Lots of passion went into this movie. I, I think everyone has a question about how do how do butt feet work. <laughs> it's a boot with like foam latex and spray you guys, painted. You guys remember the Ninja Turtle toes? <laughs> just picture okay, that, gotcha, but the, gotcha. the, the texture just was just buns. more like a okay. butt. So we made this movie, and you know, it's it's kind of a lot of cliches, and the movie is kind of a little slow. And we you know we played it to audiences, and the one thing that I took away from, and there's like zombies getting decapitated, people just melting on top of other people, and like the monster explodes. It's insane. People walked out of our movie like, that was pretty good. <laughs> and I think- That's so great to yeah. hear though, right? That's so I, fast. What an incredible lesson The lesson is, as a the teenager. ending is the most important. 
And that's why twists work great. Like, that's why M. Night Shyamalan, the thing that he does that's so unique about his twist, and we didn't do this, is his twists usually end his movies. He gives you the twist, and before you can even gasp, he's like, and credits roll. And, and the, the thing about our movie is literally the last, like, five minutes are great. The rest of the movie was weak. But, it, I mean, everybody watched Game of Thrones, and people hate that show now. It was brilliant for so long. Yeah. And they still won Emmys and Yes, whatever. and it's still great. But, the, I mean, endings are by far the most important. I think, it, I mean, I've heard this a million times, but if you have a great ending for a story, write that story over anything else you can write. Right. Very true. <laughs> And Dan, real quick, just between the two of us, the ending of Fast Nine. People is forgive everything that happens before. <laughs> Does it end in a barbecue? Okay. <laughs> and, you, and you know the thing is, the thing is, I can't even answer Ride that. Or die. Yes. Like that's a yes. Um, okay, I have three questions left, just to give you guys a gauge of where we are in the podcast episode. Um, okay, guys, real quick, you have five hundred thousand dollars to make a genre film. How important is it to attach a recognizable actor? I mean, 500,000? Yeah. It's as important as it is possible. Like, if you have somebody you can attach, do it. But, I mean, otherwise, otherwise, just shoot it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look at that. Uh, here's maybe a follow-up question. How much of your budget would you allocate toward t- towards talent? Like, say, say you've got a million, right? Scale. Hey, there we go. Schedule F. Yeah, scale. But would I you mean, give 200 grand to Mel Gibson? <laughs> If, to, or if someone actually famous. If you don't have somebody that's show. willing to make your indie movie for $500,000 at scale, then they're probably not invested enough to care about it anyway, to be honest. Why would they be in a $500,000 you know, $500, movie, to be honest? Um, more than likely, they're going to do it for scale if they love it that much. At least in our experience with making this film, like, yeah, it would have been nice to have a bigger name appear in the movie for, you know, advantages of gets you into better festivals and all that other stuff. But I... I don't know how much of an advantage it is anymore, honestly. I mean, I've, I've, we've been through this so many times at this point, and it just feels like I, I have friends that have made films that have much bigger names in them, and they're, they're struggling just like everybody else. So I think it's really just about if people really like your movie and you kind of hit something that magically works for everybody at that moment. Um, the bigger name, maybe we'll give you a little more attention getting into like a Sundance type thing because they'll be like, oh my God, he'll actually, or that person will show up and like promote the movie that gets important to them. But I think I the know. more difficult question is if you have an actor that you absolutely love and you have to choose between them or somebody that's a famous, but you might, they might not fit the role. They don't, you don't know how they're going to work. That's, that's a difficult question. And I don't know. I don't know the answer. No, I mean, like, I would just save that money to get better craft services for your crew to keep everyone happy when on those late overnights and stuff like that. Like, I come from, has known me for years. Um, no, but it's like, I, I feel so strongly about this. Like, I, I will always champion the indie voice because I feel like it's sort of disappearing with um, streaming now happening and, like, you know, everything's being developed through these studios now. And, like, you know, Netflix originally was here to champion independent films and now it's just... It's all in-house, you know what I mean? So I will always fight for, for the independent filmmaker. I always fight for the emerging um, voice. And so I think, yes, I'm like, at the end of the day, if it's $500,000, that's really not enough to appeal to a big-name actor anyways. Just make your movie, you know, and then just make it the best you can. Put every dollar you can towards the screen, it'll come back as hopefully as money, and if not, as a huge lesson for you to grow. Uh, can we actually, can we talk about festivals for a section? A second? Yeah, I mean, like, every year... 
you know, just kind of with, with regards to films that come out of festivals, you hear about the ones that are driven by brilliant concepts. Those are the ones that you hear about, for, especially right. in genre. It's like the blacklist, kind of. Yeah. And yeah, I made a, I'm going to name drop a little bit here, but I made a $500,000 film and it starred America's Sweetheart. And yes. uh, we paid her $150,000. And uh, like on day six of my shoot, the producers came over and they're like, hey, Oren, uh, got to cut two days out of the out of the shoot because like we didn't realize these like limos and all the like perks that we have to give her just to like maintain a person like her yeah we just spent like another seventy five thousand dollars or something so cut two days out of the shoot and that's like something we talk with our friend Ulrich here the host of making movies is hard who has finally made it to our live show um about whether you should you know cast a celebrity or just go make your movie and even when you get someone that's I mean, now she's very famous. Um, you, the expenses and the things, I mean, and she's, I actually love working with her and she's a great actress, but the things that go into supporting that person just don't make any sense, I think, for a budget under a million dollars. It's my, my personal experience. Yeah, trailers and her own glam squad and all that stuff. Yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, actors that you recognize have expectations for the things that they want there on set. They've been working X number of years. They they're used to getting paid this. They're used to having that. And uh, you know, a lot of times, no matter what your budget is, they're gonna they're gonna bring these wants to your set. And you might have to uh, have to push your shoot a couple of weeks too, right? I would just say it's not worth trading days for an actor ever in any case. Like with ours, like we, we, we made some offers to some people that were like fairly big. We're still an independent movie. We're independently financed. But that was done with like, we're going to make an offer to this person. That's going to be on top of the like just, you know, yank four days off the schedule just so they can be there for a week, you know. Right. And while we're talking about actors, one I just want to plug one more podcast, Audrey Moore's podcast. <laughs> Audrey helps actors. Yay! Uh, if you guys want to hear everything about the actor's side of all the stuff we're talking about, you should listen to her podcast. Audrey helps actors. Okay, ask your question. I was going to ask, so you guys are enjoying um, a ton of festival success. Yeah, we get to travel everywhere. It's great. Yeah, it's the only time we get treated well. It's nice. <laughs> and a podcast, I hope. Um, but so, uh, do you feel like your casting decisions affected the way that you were received at festivals? I do. I mean, I think, I do think that your chances are improved if you have a known actor of getting into better festivals, because no matter what it is, the, these festivals still want to promote themselves. So a known actor that may attend the festival is promotion for them. Um, it automatically helps a little bit, but I mean, you also go to a lot of these festivals and Drew and I kind of joke about it that you, you see films that like, you'll see these smaller films that are like amazing and then you'll see like the bigger films they're really promoting with like the bigger actors and they're usually pretty terrible but they're it's kind of their trade-off they're like well this guy's gonna sh this person's gonna show up but you remember this person from that tv show but remind us what festivals has the wretched played maybe can you tell us some of the festivals that are really relevant for a genre film that we might not know about like a fantasia fest well well, Fantasia Fest is probably one of the best festivals in the world you could get into for a genre film. They actually, and it's a little serious, they have this thing that runs alongside it called Frontier Fest, which is actually really useful for the filmmakers. Market. Frontiers Market. So they have one that runs in Cannes and one that runs there. Um, it's, I think it's similar to, and I've never been to the Pitch Fest in LA, but I've heard it's like people send their assistants to go listen to people pitch all day. This one, it was legit like 
companies that are producing movies and like a lot of movies are getting bought out of there. People are putting together Ripmatics and pitch decks and all that kind of stuff. And it's like a week, it's like a three week long festival. It's super long. Um, but for some reason in Montreal, there's actually a lot of industry there and they're actually listening. Yeah, I, I snuck into some of the pitches there. It's the second week of the festival and basically like everybody's there. CAA, you know, Warner's there, everybody comes in and they're all sitting in these movie theaters with these presentations on the screen with people just standing in front pitching their idea. It's, it's absolutely worth it to submit and try to be one of those people because I, I, literally like they weren't going to see the movies at the festivals, they were going to see these pitches more than anything. The other horror fest that we absolutely love is uh, Fright Fest. It's in the UK. We've been there like three times. Um, it's just a small community. You wind up spending every moment with all the other filmmakers. You know, the one thing that's great about going a lot of these film festivals, you don't at, you meet maybe one or two other filmmakers at like a brief event. But when you go to Fright Fest or some of these genre film festivals, you spend like a week just spending every lunch and every, you know, drinking with them at the end of the night. So you learn about how they got their movies produced. You learn about, you steal people. There's kind of a horror community now that's sort of grown in LA and we've sort of become part of it now. It's like a group of like 15 people and we see them all at the same fest. They all, they all share the same makeup artist. They all share the same people, you know. Right, they all have the same dad. Yeah, <laughs> basically. And, right. And you guys went to South by and Slam Dance, which are also kind of known for more for genre stuff. Is that did you sell out of South by? Me? Oh yeah, I produced yeah. A, a thing that went to South by. And as for works that I did um, as a director, I actually didn't do a lot of festival play. So um, most likely just like went to distribution and then it just gets sold like that. But one of my favorite hold on, Roxy. Let, let's talk about that for a second. So how did how did your stuff get sold? sold okay, outside of a festival I'm environment i'm crazy i don't know if you can yeah. tell already okay so um that's why you're the you best know, <laughs> tell us more um, so before uh you know i made my first feature film i'm a capricorn so this like tells you a lot about me um so i um, went to afm and i was in the middle of i had five different projects in different development uh, different stages like that i was producing i wasn't directing so they were all in different genres there was like a horror movie there was a science fiction there was a musical there was a comedy and a drama and i was like all right i'm ready i went to afm scheduled 30 meetings I sat down I went to every door I'm like hi are you acquiring films I would like a meeting with your head of acquisitions so I would sit down I would talk to them I'm like what are you looking for what are the trends that um, you predict will be happening the next couple and were you years? literally like, like oh a musical you say yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like they're like we're not acquiring I'm like try me you know and then they're like oh we're looking for this like obscure like Wes Anderson music I'm like I got it I got it you can't deny me a meeting let me sit with your head of marketing and your head of acquisitions I have a trailer let me show you so for me you you know, because this is such a high risk business and I don't really have, you know, um, I didn't have a lot of money at the time. I just wanted to make sure I did my research appropriately. So I made a lot of connections with sales agents and distributors. Um, I um, got their contacts. I followed up with them constantly. I was like, yeah, here, um, here's a trailer for, you know, this movie I produced. Are you interested when it's ready? You know, we'll follow up and all that stuff. And then they just stayed interested, you know. And then by the time I made my first feature, you know, I have good relationships with them. So I would go back to the ones that I felt were a better fit for the movie. And I would say, here is some of my like key art, you know, um, some marketing materials. Can I talk to your head of marketing? Are you guys interested? So at that point, it was like getting.
getting a sales agent interested before your festival run is much more helpful than you blindly submitting everywhere because there's actually like a whole strategy to it as well. You can't just, like your world premiere is really important. Like where you're going and doing all that is like a whole other world. Like honestly, sometimes I feel like making the film is the funnest, most easiest part and everything else is the hardest. Because at the end of the day, I'm sorry, it was into the world and I'm like, who the F is gonna watch it? Right. So I learned a lot. I also learned that, like, by the way, for all of you in the future, just is something to keep in your pocket. When you meet a head of acquisitions who's like trying to seduce you because they love your movie so much, talk to them. Yes. But ask for the head of marketing. How are you going to market my movie? What are your ideas? Make sure they don't like mismarket your brand, okay? That they're telling, that they're marketing your movie authentically to the right audience, you know, because that's gonna help a lot. Like that's a true champion, you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, you can make a really good movie and no one watches it. And that's like, you lose your money, you lose all that, you lose momentum, you lose passion, and you don't want that. So sometimes I feel like you need to have a bit of a practical approach before you go all heads in on your artistic side. Because honestly, like as filmmakers, yes, we're creative, but we also sort of have to produce our own thing. Like we all had to go through that, um, getting our first ones off the ground. There's, there's only one other thing about film festivals that I would just point out is submitting online where you pay and you submit your film, it's great. Go ahead and do it, but truth be told, find the programmers online, find them on Twitter. If you have a friend that knows somebody or whatever, send it to them, get in contact with them. Don't pay money and submit if you don't have to because if you get a hold of them, you're gonna skip so many lines of the other people that have to watch your movie before it gets to them and they'll consider it. And even if they don't like it or they like it enough but it doesn't fit their festival, they'll sometimes be like, but I know this other person at this other festival and they might be interested too. It, it's, it's, I don't, I don't want to say it's a scam to submit and pay for all those things, but that's how festivals stay alive in that way. So find the programmers. That's the yeah, best thing you can do. Yeah, relationships are everything. And we've seen just a lot of other filmmakers go to festivals that we've been to, and they're really good buddies with all the programmers at the festivals. So, of course, the programmers want them to come and have drinks with them and hang out. So that's, a, that's just a huge component of life, you know? So it's, Build yeah. community. Um, well, I think we should wrap things up. So I have one last question. Somebody's opened up a wormhole. And you can send one tweet, 240 characters, to yourself the year you moved to LA. Just one piece of advice. What's like something that you didn't realize when you first moved here that now is like something that you wish you knew? Matt? Oh, I didn't know I had to answer this. I'm, bu I'm buying them time. And um, also giving them a great example of what an answer could be. Pay your student loans? <laughs> no, that's it. Um, just shoot it? Just shoot it. Yeah, I, that's actually probably it. I, um, yeah. That's okay, guys. You guys, that, that's the main theme of the show. So In three that's words. Okay, guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, shoot more shorts, actually. I would shoot more shorts. I mean, I think have made stuff before you come out here, because this place is really lonely for people that are like, I want to make films. I'm in California now. Like, I think make as many things as you can before you get here. Uh, uh, pay your parking tickets as you get them in Los Angeles so your car doesn't get towed. <laughs> I got one. Multiple irons in the fire, I would say. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, that, that comes from having done the Sundance Labs with, with that script that I told you guys about. Um, uh, I put a better part of 
two, three years, you know, just kind of trying to get that film off the ground. And my reason for that was because I, you know, it's the Sundance Labs and it's, you know, I should really, you know, I should really make this no matter what. And uh, I've got some heat. It's bona fide. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the thing is, is just like always look for where the opportunity is. You don't, it, your one script is not going to be your messianic arrival, you know what I mean, to the business. You know, have two or three, and if one thing's not going, that doesn't mean you know that that you, that you're neglecting it by by not doing it and moving on. It just means that it's going in a drawer for another day. You know, I know the Pierces wrote a script many many years ago that is my favorite of their scripts, but it's too big. You know what I mean for for where they are now. And so, you know, just if if you're just getting started, don't go down with one ship. You know, have five ships. Um, okay, Roxy, let's see if you can stay in the Twitter account. I would say you don't need permission. Okay, unpaid endorsements? Uh, yeah, yeah, let's do some unpaid endorsements. One, two, three. Unpaid endorsements. Thanks. Good guys. If you guys nice. have never listened to the podcast, that's, that's the sound that happens now. Um, so usually we just ask people what they're into, but this time we're going to be a little more focused and we wanted to know like, what you guys do, especially since we're talking about fantastical worlds and genres and things beyond our normal world. Like, What you guys do to get inspired? I watch bad horror movies. It gets me excited. How do you define bad? <laughs> elevated horror. No. <laughs> oh, we didn't I get into it. I love elevated horror, actually. I just hate the... We didn't talk about that. I just hate the title, elevated yeah, horror. Yeah. Yeah. I love elevated horror. I just think it's like a producer's I think stand. it's a code yeah. word like... A good horror movie. Yeah, good, a good that's horror movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just like I think schlocky, bad. I don't know, just tropey horror movies. For some reason, it gets my. I think I just get so frustrated with them that it just makes me want to make something. I think watching something bad sometimes can be more inspiring than watching your favorite movie. Yeah, Dan, you can probably correct me if I'm wrong, but I think like a really good thing to say in a pitch is like every horror movie does this. They have a character that that always does this, and I just want to make a movie where they don't do that. And so having that kind of, like, like finding those tropes, like those deep tropes, and then finding a way against them could be like the inspiration to come up with a story. Absolutely. In, in some cases, that character who, you know, gets overlooked can, somebody, can sometimes be your, uh, your, your lead character. Right. right the grill yeah. master at the barbecue. Find, yeah. <laughs> find a distinct perspective. I didn't, I'm sorry, Dan. I had no idea we were going to make so many fast jokes. It is all about family. <laughs> uh, Roxy? I'd like to invite out one of my friends. So he recently had like lunch with me and I'm like, I'll never work with you. I'm like, you're just too famous. He goes, I'll never work with you because you're too famous. I'm like, oh, wow, we love each other. And then now we're developing a show called Ghost Grandmas. Ooh, about two famous grandmas. That's cool. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. It's genre, Golden Girls meets Stranger Things. It's going to be great. Age diversity. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Nice. Orin, what do you do? Uh, well, I like to go to my favorite Starbucks, the Starbucks Reserve in Los Feliz. Um, Fancy. And uh, yeah. it's the same prices as any other Starbucks. But I just like <laughs> sit, they have these like really deep couches and I just like sit there and like put headphones in, but I don't like listen to anything. I just like listen to the people around me talking and then I just like write down what they say. <laughs> yeah. yeah <they're laughs> and then, uh, you know, write a script off that. But cool. Well, thanks everyone. I well, I... Oh, <laughs> guy Matt yeah Jeez, Louise uh, I, I like a blank page actually is my main thing I like to just like turn off the internet and like just zero in yeah yeah freedom is that what you sure mean? I love freedom yeah Dan what do you got uh, 
unpaid endorsement yeah. uh, for sending cupcakes after the meeting because even if you made yourself look like a jerk while you were sitting there, you can send cupcakes Ooh. afterwards and they won't think that you were such a bad guy girl. There you go. That's yeah. like the uh, the ending is always the best part, right? Exactly. Love yeah. it. I've never done that before. The cupcake, the cupcake move. How do you think I got fast? I just sent everybody <laughs> cupcakes. I can tell you, for actors, and maybe Audrey, you can correct me if you think this is wrong, but I had an actor friend that would like bring stuff like he'd call the casting office on his way to the audition and ask everyone that worked there what they wanted from starbucks um, hey and then uh, yeah he'd get a lot of yeah. callbacks i don't know that's a little sweaty i would be like what's in that coffee yeah he did drug everyone that worked with him. <laughs> well cool should we stop and then restart and just do a quick q a yeah let's do it yep. okay cool Okay, and that's where the recording stopped working. Unfortunately, we did not get our Q&A recorded, but I assure you it was amazing. Next time, if you're at the show, you'll know all about the questions we got. But it was a really fun time. I want to say thank you one more time to Dan, Roxy, Brett, and Drew. You should check out all their stuff. They're all really interesting filmmakers in their own way, and we had a really great time. So please stay tuned. This episode was edited by Oren Kaplan and Matt Enlow. Our webmaster is Ewan Williams, and the music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the Artist Bazaar. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>